Thank you, Tommy. And it's good to have Andrew with us today. And uh, we're going to continue our study in the what we call the Doctrine of the Apostle. And we're in part nine. But before we do, let's have a moment of silent prayer. You think about prayer. And uh, remember in the light of, again, Romans 8, 26, 27, and 28, it says all you've got to do is to name it to the Lord and the Holy Spirit and and certainly the Lord Jesus Christ will take the prayer to the Father and He will take care of the situation. So that gives us a great deal of confidence because, of course, those first two verses say that we don't know about what to pray. But don't worry because there's intercession going to be made for us and the Father's going to get the perfect prayer. Romans 8, 26, 27, and 28. And that's why we can quote 28. And we know that all things work together for the good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. Let us pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, Ken, come and lead us in a song, please.
All right, by way of announcements, uh, I'm going to announce that uh, Wednesday I most likely will have our uh, Bible study in the book of John, and then we'll have uh, our prayer meeting, uh, but uh, we'll just wait and, wait and see how I feel. But uh, last week I apologized for not having an Easter message, and uh, uh, but I did actually come the next day and feel well enough to be able to do it. I can't remember if I did it at home in my study or if I did it up here. But I did do, uh, I guess I did it up here because Emily back there, who my granddaughter, sang a beautiful song. And I would re- certainly recommend, of course, the message. But in addition, the song that she sang, it was uh, Christ, of course, uh, had his cradle and Easter, Christmas has its cradle, and Easter has its cross. A very beautiful song. Tommy found that, and uh, she did a really great job. Of course, I did a great job with the message also, but it's on the internet. In other words, westbankbiblechurch.com. So uh, feel free to get it if you so choose, but it is there for your your benefit. So maybe Wednesday, maybe not, 6.30 prayer meeting, 7 o'clock Bible study. All right, uh, now let's go to another aspect of worship called giving. Uh, we do things a little different in this church. Uh, we do New Testament giving. And of course, uh, the Bible has a couple of chapters that are devoted totally to New Testament giving. One is Second Corinthians chapter 8 and the other is 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and I have selected two verses out of there to summarize what the Bible teaches about uh, New Testament giving. Uh, what it doesn't teach is tithing for the church age, the age in which we live, and it doesn't teach sacrificial giving, it doesn't teach bribing God for th- certain things, but uh, basically what it teaches are the following two things. First of all, in 2 Corinthians eight twelve says, for if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one doesn't have. And uh, as I look at that in its context, I think what it's saying is that uh, he doesn't always bless us. But when he does bless us, uh, then we have opportunity to give. But uh, the important thing is the willingness Therefore, when we have a moment of silent prayer, you want to give. The way that I read that, you can give because the want to is important. And then 2 Corinthians 9, 7 adds something addition, additional to uh, the person who has something. Maybe God has blessed. Sometimes God tests us. Sometimes He blesses us. And if He's blessed you and you have something to give, you have something else to do according to that verse. Every man according as he purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly, because God loves a cheerful giver. So you gotta be able to be a cheerful giver, or you ought to just keep your money. And that's the way I read that, and that's the way we follow, because we are going to follow the New Testament. Uh, so, we don't believe in tithing, we don't believe in sacrificial giving, we don't believe in, uh, uh, oh, you might say taking care of the budget, by subscribing the budget so that we, you know, are solvent. We're, we, we stay solvent because of the grace of God. And uh, that's uh, the way we like it. So, so much then for uh, giving, but it is an aspect of worship. That's key. Sometimes we don't think of it as equal to praying, as equal to the preaching, as equal to the song service. But it is. It's, it's an act of worship but under only the proper uh, protocol found in the New Testament. And that's 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Plus, we have a doctrine of giving 
on the internet. You can go to westbankbiblechurch.com and go to Pastor Mary's study book. Click, and uh, it'll appear, I don't know how many we have now, three or four hundred study books where you can just go down the list and find giving, click on giving, then you get the written lesson. And we also have a podcast which has various things on it, uh, various subjects like the authenticity of the Bible, uh, dispensations, etc. So we are attempting to use the technology that is there and uh, uh, we're reaching quite a few people. You can look and see how many people on the fel- in the fellowship hall, uh, we go anywhere between 18,000 hits and 13,000 hits. So, uh, and all over the world. Uh, so, uh, we're f- trying to follow the Great Commission, which is to get the Word of God out. All right, now with that said, we've covered uh, announcements and we've covered giving, and I think we're ready for another song, Kenneth. How about it? I can't hear you. Let's just get a song. We'll get there. 474 to stand and sing the first, second, and fourth verses. up just a little bit. Ken being our treasurer uh, doing his job and make sure that we didn't miss giving. But uh, we do have of course giving and as you know I went over it in great detail. And uh, we do have a, a need now for rebound. You say well what is rebound? Well rebound is if you played any basketball, you know what I'm talking about. You shoot at the goal, and if you miss, you you go get the rebound. You know, and if you're guarding the guy, you block him out and so forth. But uh, same uh, concept when you in time you're going to sin. First John one nine one nine tells us that we need to confess our sins, and uh, if we do, we are filled with the Spirit and we can learn. So. Uh, we have a need from time to time to to confess, which simply means to name your sin back to God. It's actually homologeto in the Greek, and it means to cite. Uh, you're citing one that Christ took care of on the cross. Uh, 
And uh, if you don't, if you think you don't sin, then you need to read the very verse preceding First John one nine. It says, if you say you've not sinned, you lie. And then the one after it, it says, if you say you've not sinned, you make God a liar. So we know we're going to end other places in the scripture. We all know we're going to sin. That's why we need confession. It's most, one of very, the most important things we have in the Christian life. Because we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for our salvation. But then we, uh, of course, have need to to cite sin to God from time to time, and we take care of that by simply citing or name it as the case may be. All right, so now we're going to use rebound. So that means we're going to have a moment of silent prayer. You think about uh, uh, your life, and uh, if you do have sin in your life, like for the moment, you simply silently name your sin back to God. And then you, of course... uh, are filled with the Spirit, and you're ready to, again, uh, take in the Word and grow in His grace. Let us pray. Father, we're grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and to worship and uh, to grow in your wonderful grace by the intake of the Word. For I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, earlier we completed a study of the trials of Paul, and now we're ready to review Paul's last days, beginning with his trip to Rome. I am going to... Put a transparency on the board that shows Paul's last trip. We studied the first missionary journey. We studied the second missionary journey. We studied the third missionary journey. So now we're ready to take a look at what some call the fourth missionary journey. But uh, I like to just think of it as Paul's journey to Rome. All right. Uh, I want to review some of that learned over a period of time, mostly the last time we were here together, uh, which, of course, the Easter lesson was about Easter. So we've been a week away, so uh, we need the review. So we're going to review the trials of Paul. And I'm not talking about the tribulations of Paul. I'm talking about the adjudications of Paul in the Roman court system. First, the, uh, uh, the um, Jewish court system and then the Roman court system. All right, after the third missionary journey, Paul returns to Jerusalem in hopes of gaining access to the hearts and minds of the many Jewish converts living in the city. That city, of course, being Jerusalem. Paul spends several days in the temple participating in purification uh, rites, uh, in particularly one, uh, the purpose of which to assure his Jewish brethren that he is not a heretic. Remember, Paul was a Jew. And uh, a Jewish Christian, he was, uh, you know, he was a Benjamite, and he was a member of the Sanhedrin, and he persecuted the church until he, of course, was on the road to Damascus and became a Christian. His name was Saul, and later became Paul, so we'll use it interchangeably. All right, the Jews at Jerusalem are, however, implacable and outraged, thinking that Paul had taught the Jews of Asia Minor. Uh, to turn away from Moses and his many trips, first missionary journey, Asia Minor, first mission, second missionary, missionary journey, Asia Minor, but also crossing the Hellas Point and going over into Europe for the first time with organized religion. Went over into Macedonia, <coughs> excuse me, Macedonia. All right, uh, an angry mob gathers outside the temple uh, to confront Paul on the steps of the temple. Paul is physically accosted is rescued by a platoon of Roman soldiers. We found that in Acts 21, 31 through 36. Paul's first defense, therefore, is before an unruly mob. 
first on the steps of the temple and later from the steps of Fort Antonio, which was located just across the street from the temple. It was also called Mark Antony's Barracks. Paul is mistaken for an early Egyptian heretic by the Roman guards. Acts 21, 38 through 40. Paul witnesses to the angry mob telling them of his conversion experience on the road to Damascus where the Lord appeared to him. And uh, that's found in Acts 22, 2 through 21. All seems well until he mentions the book, or excuse me, until he mentions that he took the gospel to the Gentiles. Then the Jews go berserk. They did not want the Gentiles to hear the gospel. That is to say that Christ was the Son of God who went to the cross and and the end of the grave and was resurrected on our behalf. So Paul is saved from the crowd of Roman soldiers who take him into custody. Paul declares himself to be a Roman citizen and the centurion becomes concerned that he has bound a Roman without cause. In other words, uh, Roman citizens, one of the one of the benefits of being a Roman citizen was they could not be bound without a trial and and uh, they got a little antsy about that. All right, Paul is saved from the crowd by Roman citizens who take him and he decides, uh, well, actually, he declared himself to be a Roman citizen. And the centurion becomes concerned that he was uh, one who had been bound without cause. So Paul is brought before the Sanhedrin, which is the Jewish legal body uh, that, uh, as a result of uh, a rebellion, Roman... Uh, Rome gave them the right to have a Sanhedrin and a Sanhedrin guard. Uh, so uh, they were very unusual in one of the provinces that had this particular, I call it an asset if you will. So Paul decides to divide the Sanhedrin by letting it known he was a Pharisee who was on trial because he believed in the resurrection of the dead. There were Sadducees and Pharisees, the Sadducees predominant groups. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrections and the Pharisees did. So when he brought that up, he divided them, uh, and I'm sure purposefully, in order to get a, quote, better deal. Uh, whatever the Lord considered to be the better deal. All right, and we'll see more of that. So the Lord visits and comforts Paul in a night vision. He tells him everything's going to be okay. Relax uh, if you can. And, uh, if, and living the Christian life... Is one of those uh, very most difficult things to do to have the right RMA, relaxed mental attitude, knowing that all things are working together for the good to them who love God, to them who are the cause. So therefore, we can give thanks in everything uh, as the Scripture demands. So Paul was uh, comforted. So he is removed from Jerusalem under, you'll remember, under armed guard because a plot was discovered to kill him by the Jews. Uh, and as a result, Paul is taken to Caesarea. You remember we talked about the number of guards that were assigned, the cavalry unit that was assigned, and where they came, and how they, how his nephew heard the plot, went and told the Romans, and the Romans said, "We better get him out of here." So let's get him on to uh, over to uh, Caesarea. And I'm going to turn the chart off and on from time to time, simply because it kind of gives you a it's a it's a glare for some people. All right, so here is, of course, uh, Caesarea right here where I'm pointing. Uh, I also have a laser here somewhere. Uh, I know everybody likes a laser show, you know, so I'm going to find out if I get it to work. Yay! All right, so we're talking about right here. Uh, and uh, it is, it at one time was called Joppa. Uh, and it, there was a port there. And uh, for years it was thought, well, it, how could it be a port? We, had, we don't have it today. But uh, they did some excavation underwater and found that at one time there was indeed a port there. So he goes to Caesarea and to get him out of Jerusalem so they will not, the plot failed, of course. All right, uh, Felix was the procurator of Judea under Claudius and Nero. We have a doctrine of the Roman Caesars. You can look on the internet and see who, see who all the biblical Roman Caesars were, uh, and, uh, certain descriptions of them provided for us out of an excellent book, 
by Michael Grant. All right, the descriptions by Tacitus are classic. He thought he could do any evil act with impunity, and he exercised the power of a king in the spirit of a slave. That was what the historian Tacitus said about him, uh, who was a famous uh, historian. All right, Felix listened to Paul's defense and postponed any decision pending more information from Lysias. That was the Roman commander in Jerusalem who had originally saved him. Felix then reminds or remands Paul to Herod's judgment hall to await his accusers. Felix then sends for Ananias the chief priest. Now we're back with the Roman, I mean with a, a Jew. So Ananias arrives from Jerusalem with his chief prosecutor. That is to say, uh, Paul is accused of, by his lawyer, if you will, or district attorney we might say, Tertullus, who accuses Paul of disturbing the quietude, profaning the temple, and inciting sedition among the Jews throughout the world. And there's the scripture that we looked at to document that. Paul defends himself before Felix. He first denies the charges. He further makes the point that there was not sufficient time, that is Paul, to have done all which they had charged him with. He admits raising the question of the resurrection in Acts. We find all that, Acts 24, 17 through 23. Our Paul witnesses to Felix and Drusilla, Acts 24, 24 through 26. All right, Paul is placed in, in a Caesarean prison. Now then, on your lesson plan, I've also provided a, a map of the area, and you can see how uh, he went from Jerusalem uh, under guard uh, to where Joppa is uh, there on the coast. All right, now let's go on with point 17. Uh, Felix was recalled to Rome by Emperor Nero under accusation by the Jews of bad administration. Porcius Festus succeeded him as procurator of Judea in circa AD 60. Though Felix knew that justice required Paul's dismissal, he left him in prison because he saw that he could thereby ingratiate himself with the Jews, Acts 24 and 27. So while his two-year incarceration must have been very trying on Paul, one redeeming feature was that throughout the entire time, Luke was with the apostle. So you remember Luke wrote the book of Acts, and Luke also wrote the book of Luke. So uh, he had uh, time to uh, work on his uh, two books, if you will. So quite certainly Luke uses... Luke, by the way, was a Gentile, and he was also a physician. So Luke used his time to gather information about the life and ministry of Jesus and to compile notes about the life of the early church. So the the material later appeared in the Gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts. Festus, soon after taking over from Felix, goes to Jerusalem where he parties for several days with the Jewish leadership and agrees to a second trial. So Paul is again tried by this time, but this time by Festus. So Festus could find no offense against Paul, but wanted to please the Jews. So he orders that Paul be returned to Jerusalem to be judged before the Sanhedrin. In other words, sending him back to get under Jewish uh, a Jewish judicial system. Uh, but he refuses, and he demands as a Roman citizen, which he had that right, to be sent to Caesar, uh, Acts 25, 6 through 12. About this time, King Agrippa and his sister, who was, by the way, who all, many historians say was his wife, he was, they were living together in an incestuous relationship, uh, they arrive at Caesarea, and they want to be part of the deal. So before Paul could be sent to Rome, a native king, Agrippa, came to Caesarea to greet Festus as the new Roman governor. Herod Agrippa II was the son of the first persecutor of the church, uh, his father Agrippa I being infamous for the execution. Remember, we studied that when we studied the book of Acts. Uh, for the execution of James and the imprisonment of Peter. So when the Agrippa I died, his kingdom was not bestowed upon his son, but was placed under Roman governors. So in A.D. 53, Agrippa II was given the rulership of a small small area north of Palestine called Abilene. So later, certain towns in Galilee and Perea were added to his domain. In addition, he was entrusted with the important function of supervising the temple treasurer in Jerusalem. 
He was also given the responsibility of appointing the high priest. This gave him significant influence in Jewish affairs, and his interests thus overlapped with those of Festus. All right, so Bernice, then sister of Herod, had been the wife of Herod of Calchas. Her husband had died, and she was now living with their brother. Many historians, again, as noted, uh, think it was an incestuous situation. So Festus and King Agrippa review Paul's case. Agrippa agrees to hear Paul in Acts 25, 14 through 22. Now we are ready for new material. So that is a review because we've been gone two or three weeks from this lesson. Uh, and uh, we will now slow down and uh, begin to provide the scriptures just like we had done previously where I just got through giving you just the addresses. All right, so Paul is sent to Rome. That will be our first heading uh, in our new material. And there is the map that it, I've been put, I have on the board. Uh, and it will be uh, helpful to you from time to time to review. And unless I see somebody squinting, if it bothers you, I'll turn the chart off. But uh, nothing but smiles from Patsy in particular. Thank you, Patsy. All right, voyage to Rome, Caesarea to Crete. So we know we got into Caesarea, didn't we? And uh, Acts 27, beginning in verse 1, we have lengthy scripture there because we're going to read all the way through 27, verse 13. All right, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the imperial regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramitium. You can look up there and see Adramitium up there in Asia Minor, which is now Turkey. Uh, and it was about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia. And we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. So you had Luke and you had Aristarchus and you had uh, Paul. And you just could imagine the, Paul's uh, concern he was about to get on a ship to go to Rome and he didn't know what was going to happen in Rome but Christ had appeared to him in a vision and said, go ahead, you know, go to Rome. I want you to witness for me in Rome. And of course, Rome at that time was a horrible place because they were hanging Christians up on crosses and setting them on fire. They were had them in the Colosseum being eaten by lions, etc. for various things. Uh, and so Paul, you know, didn't know... Uh, I'm sure he wasn't real happy with what he was having to, or was going to experience. Alright, uh, so, uh, 27.3 says, the next day we landed at Sidon, you can also see that on your map, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. So we find out here that he got a warm fuzzy, I'm sure, because he got on the boat, and uh, he didn't know what, who was going to be driving the boat, who was going to be in charge of the boat, you know. Uh, and uh, this was a pleasant, nice guy, uh, a Roman cent- uh, centurion. Uh, and so it was interesting. I'm sure when he first heard he had to go to Rome, he was greatly concerned because he's just like you and me. He, he, he's, a, he's a human being, and we have from time to time concerns about the future. But uh, I'm sure he got a little bit, uh, uh, as I say, a warm fuzzy when he found out that this guy was a nice guy. All right, so the next day we landed at Sidon and Julius in kindness to Paul. From there, uh, he allowed him to talk to some of his friends there. See, Paul had witnessed all these folks on his first missionary journey and his second missionary journey and his third missionary journey. So he had uh, disciples uh, in these areas. And remember, he was also born in Cilicia where he had a lot of witnessing going on because that's where Tarsus is located in the province of Cilicia, which is also on your map uh, over there in the province of Pamphylia. All right, so when we had crossed, uh, sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra, uh, and you can see that also on your map, in the province of Lycia. They have many provinces. In other words, Rome had taken over the world, if you will, and was dominating uh, with their great armies, if you will. And uh, 
that's how they, that's where they got slaves. In other words, slave was predominant in the time of Rome, uh, where it was estimated that over a third to three fourths of the people population in Rome were slaves, and most of them were, of course, people that were found in the various provinces that Roman provinces that Roman conquered. Now let's go to verse 5. It said, When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra. Now then verse 6. There the centurion found an Alexandrian ship. Now we're talking about another ship. He's going to, sailing for Italy. Uh, Italy, excuse me, that's what we say in Waco. Italy. But uh, we got, uh, uh, he got on this boat, and you'll look down in there in Egypt, and you'll see on south, and you'll see Alexandria. So that was a the, what many consider to be the capital of uh, Egypt. But anyway, they, uh, uh, he got on a new boat. Now he's got to find out, well, who's the commander of this boat? You know, How's it going to be here? And uh, he, then it says, we made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving at Sinaitis. And you can find that on your map too. Go back up there where you see Lycia in big letters and go off to the coast. You'll see a little island called Sinaitis. And when the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the, to the lee, which would be on the, on, unless you look at the map to your left, I keep pointing to the left, you know, but the leeward side, uh, which allowed the wind to hold us on our course sailing, uh, across the uh, Mediterranean Sea. Alright, we moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lasea. And Wayne tells me, Wayne Warren, that when he was reading comic books many, many years ago, that uh, this particular place called Fair Havens was one of Popeye's uh, uh, key ports. So you can see Fair Havens on, on the map. All right, uh, right in there in the middle of that, that island, the island of Crete. All right, so much time has been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because it was now after the fast, meaning it was in September, one of the feast days. And uh, Paul is greatly concerned. Uh, he So Paul warned them. He said, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. Uh, but the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul had said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Uh, since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that they should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. That would mean going north, going around the island and going up to where you see Phoenix. There they could harbor and spend time there and wait until the time of the year when indeed they could uh, sail safely all the way to Rome. Well, that didn't turn out to be the way it could be. Because then the wind changed. God is directing this thing like you wouldn't believe. The wind turned gentle south and they thought they had obtained what they wanted so they weighed on anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. So now they're, they're on their way again. Now they go out and they're going to get in a terrible storm. Uh, and uh, I'll show you. Here's the storm. You probably already figured it out right here. So they're going to... They try to go up here and they can't and they start and against Paul's wishes they go in this direction. But we're going to see Paul's got a good news, bad news deal. Or bad news, good news. Alright, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous, Paul speaking, but and it's going to bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, he goes with the pilot. So now let's talk about the storm. All right, Acts 27, beginning in verse 14. says, Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and uh, could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along as we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, which you can also see on your map. We were hardly able to take the lifeboats, make the lifeboats secure. So he's going to ask that something be done. He's going to say, let's, let's, uh, get rid of the lifeboat because it's going to just, you know, uh, be very difficult because it's going to be swaying in the back and it's going to make the ship difficult to steer. So the men that had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under it, 
the ship itself to hold it together. They got rid of the lifeboat. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. So they just dropped the anchor and say, in essence, saying, I give up. You know, we can't guide this thing and we're in terrible storm, hurricane. So let's just, uh, uh, let's go ahead and uh, um, do the best we can. We're going to run ropes around the vessel itself and tie them to try to keep all the, the wood together in the vessel. Uh, and then they were told to throw the cargo overboard. And, uh, and on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And then when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, that had to be a terrible situation. No light, the storm raging. We finally gave up all hopes of being saved. Now, of course, you know who wrote this. Luke wrote this. So uh, he And he was there. He, he and Aristarchus and Paul, as far as Christ, Christians are concerned. Now Paul begins to assert some leadership. Let's read in 27, 21, and 22. After the men had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Uh, and then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. And that's because Paul had been told that by the Lord. So, the vision of Paul. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God, that it shall be even as it was told me. Nevertheless, he says, we must run aground on some land. Alright, so they began to prepare for what Paul said. So on the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea. Adriatic Sea, of course, is what separates uh, uh, Italy from... Uh, uh, and I've got it marked on your, your, your map. Uh, Macedon, uh, uh, what is now called Slovenia or also Albania. I could tell you some stories about Albania. We haven't been in Italy and how the people in Italy hate the people in Al- Albania because they're Muslims. And then Slovenia, which is south, and of course you remember Donald Trump's wife was from, was from Slovenia. So it's, uh, separates. Tom and I was out in the middle of the Adriatic, uh, at one time on a boat and, uh, but, uh, we were also having dinner one night. And, it was when Laura and uh, uh, Rudy were married, and we were we were in Italy and going to marry them in Italy. And uh, we were having dinner together, and all of a sudden, here came this guy out playing his violin, you know. And the uh, owner of the cafe come out, came out, and said, "Get out of here! Get out of here!" Then he looked over at us and said, "Albanians." You know, so highly prejudiced of Albania. So Christians in Italy and the Muslims in, in Albania and Slovenia, etc. Alright, they took soundings. They began to drop the things to see how deep the water was. It was 120 feet deep. A short time later, they took another one. It got to be 90 feet deep. So they know they're moving into the shore. So fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors left the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurions and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. In other words, I told you they were going to get rid of the lifeboat. And so uh, Paul says, whoa, wait a minute now. Those guys uh, that are trying to get away... Uh, he said the ship cannot be saved without them. So the soldiers cut the ropes that let the, held the lifeboat and let it fall away. All right, now food is served. Just before dawn, Paul, remember, had urged them all to eat for the last 14 days. He said you've been in constant suspense and have some have gone without food. And now I urge you to take some food. You need to, to survive. Not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. And he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke the bread and began to eat. 
They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 on board. Now, that gives you an idea of the size of this vessel. 276 men on board that vessel. And uh, so it wasn't just your average rowboat, you know, kind of deal. All right, so when they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing grain, the grain into the sea. So they're getting everything out as best they can. Now they sight a beach. So when daylight came, they didn't, they didn't recognize the land. They didn't know where they were, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. So cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. The ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move. And of course that left them subject to the waves hitting because they just weren't moving. They were stuck on the sandbars. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. That was the custom of the day. You know, if you were given uh, some men to take uh, on a trip and you and they got away from you, you got the punishment that they were going to get if they, of course, were prisoners. So... They were, they were panicking. So the centurion, however, wanted to spare Paul's life and kept him from carrying out their plan. Because Paul would have been one of them that he, he, he would, that they would have killed as a prisoner, as well as others. So apparently there were other prisoners on board. So he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. Uh, the rest were to get there on planks or on pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached land safety. So I'm sure they asked the question, you know, how many of you can swim? Several rows there, and he said, get off, and uh, swim to shore. And then he told the rest of them, uh, the ship's going to break up, so wait till it starts breaking up, and then you see a great piece of wood, or a larger piece of wood, dive in and hold on to that wood, and let it take you like a surfboard to uh, shore. So the rest were to get on the planks, and uh, in this way everyone reached sand, reached land safety. 476 men were saved. Alright, on the island of Malta. Now it's called Melita in Scripture, but it is Malta today. It's a very famous island. It's where Roosevelt and Stalin and uh, uh, Churchill met in World War II. It's a place of hiding where they were, were planning World War II, so they went to the island of Malta. So Paul is bitten there by a poisonous snake and miraculously delivered. A man named Publius who lived on the island is miraculously healed as well as many others who suffered from various diseases. So Paul is received with honor. So now let's look at the scriptures documenting that. Since once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness they built a fire. These are people who, who came to welcome them on the beach uh, and uh, because it was raining and cold. And Paul gathered a pile of brushwood on, and as he put it on the fire of a viper, a very, very poisonous snake that always induced death, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. So he pulls his hand up, you know, and he's shaking it, I'm sure, and the viper's holding on to his hand. Uh, and when the islanders saw the snake handing, uh, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer. For though he escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. You can see the pagan attitudes of the folks there on the boat. Uh, but Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. Now that impressed them greatly and it also gave him opportunity to uh, witness about the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only him, but also, uh, we'll see later on, he actually will see one of the head men of the island itself. Alright, Acts 28, 6, reading through verse 10, the people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead, but after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god, little g. Alright, there was an estate nearby which belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island, he welcomed us to his home and for three days entertained us hospitably. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went to see him and after prayer placed his hands on him and 
on him and healed him. Because this was a time where healing was a valid gift. And, of course, he was using his apostolic gift of, of healing. Now, when this happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. So he had to set up a, a triage, if you will, and was healing people right and left. Uh, and they honored us in many ways. And when we were ready to sell, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. So it's the shipwreck is over, and now they're ready to continue their voyage on. So they were given supplies and a vessel. All right, so the brethren meet Paul, and the great apostle gives thanks to God. Notice Acts 28, 15, people who, who had... Um, and this tells us something about history. There were already a lot of believers uh, in Italy. There were all a lot of, a lot of believers uh, in Rome. And uh, so there had been witnessing. We know that Peter was there at one time. We know also that uh, um, John Mark was there because John Mark learned from Peter all the things he wrote in the book of Mark because he he never saw Jesus. He wasn't with Jesus. I don't I don't mean he never saw Jesus. He may have seen Jesus, but he was not a, a follower of Jesus, if you will. Uh, certainly not enough to know all the things that needed to go in the book of Mark. Book of Mark is a great book. It's probably the best book in terms of uh, uh, things that happen. In other words, here it happened, here it happened, here it happened, here in in uh, in. Uh, but anyway, we studied the Book of Mark. I don't want to get into all that at this point in time. But let's go. All right. So Acts twenty eight fifteen. From thence, when the brethren heard of us, they came to meet us at Appii. You can see that on your map, and three taverns. But when Paul saw, he thanked God and took courage. Don't you know he did? Uh, all right, Paul arrives at Rome and is placed under house arrest. Now, when he uh, came to Rome, uh, he didn't go to prison. Instead, he went into a villa, and a guard was placed with him. And uh, he began to preach in Rome. So, I'm going to read you 28.16. And when he came to Rome, he the centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was suffered to dwell by himself with the soldier that kept him. So this was a member of the Praetorian Guard. And we have a doctrine of the Praetorian Guard in one of my study books. Again, a book uh, uh, that is excellent uh, that tells about Rome and also the Praetorian Guard. And I have a doctrine, as I think I just said, uh, about the Praetorian Guard. And we're going to look at it. Uh, but I don't think we're going to get to it today since I've only got four minutes. So I'll rush on. All right. First, Paul first witnesses to the chief of the Jews and several of his key disciples. Some believed and others did not. Uh, Acts twenty-eight seventeen through 14, he says, And some believed the things which were spoken, and some believed not. So people come to him there at the villa. You can imagine he's uh, in this villa. He's with a member of the Praetorian Guard. He's being guarded. And uh, people come and he witnesses to them. Now Paul remained under house arrest for approximately two more years. He continues to witness to both Jew and Gentile. So he had spent one year, uh, as you'll remember, in Caesarea. Now he's going to spend two years in Rome. And uh, he will be there. Uh, there's, a three, there's three years in Caesarea, two, Caesarea and three years in Rome. This is the first imprisonment. Uh, in Rome, Paul writes the four prison epistles, Philemon, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians. Now, the thing we need to remember, and we studied in great detail in the book of Acts, Paul is under discipline here. He never should have done what he did by going to Jerusalem, paying the penance of somebody, going into the temple and taking his hair and burning it, you know, getting back under the law because you don't need to be back under the law. So God said, okay, I'm going to put you in prison for, for three years in Caesarea and three years in Rome and you can write the prison epistles. A wonderful grace gift for us because we got the, those four books and there they are. Philemon, Ephesians, Colossians, and Philippians. So he's released from prison for some one to two, two years during which time he travels to Greece Crete and Dalmatia. Greece you know about. Crete you know about. Dalmatia is Yugoslavia today. And perhaps other places not documented. That's in between his first and second imprisonments. And he wrote the book of Titus during this period. And sometime after the writing of 
this book, he will again be incarcerated by Nero in Rome, where he will ultimately be executed. Now, there is a great deal of disputation concerning whether Paul endured two Roman imprisonments during that period 60 to 68, uh, or just one imprisonment. Our position recognizes two imprisonments with an appropriate year of liberty between the two. And I have provided you the reasons why I think, Colonel R.B. Thiem thinks, Louis Perry Chafer thinks, uh, Dr. Ryrie thinks, uh, Moody Bible Institute thinks, etc., that uh, there was two imprisonments. Uh, one, you know, which we just studied about, and then there, if he gets out, in other words, because it just stops. If you study your book of Acts, you'll see it comes along here and boom. We don't know what happened. So that brings about the conjecture. But uh, we have certainly reasons why, and I have provided them for you there. And now I see it's time to stop. So we'll stop now and pick up next week, the Lord willing, and the creek doesn't rise, uh, with the reasons why we believe in two imprisonments. And then we will continue uh, we're just about finished with our study of Paul. And I don't know where we'll go from there. Uh, but it's the plan is to, to go somewhere, meaning some other book of the Bible. So it's time now for our invitation. We do this because we don't know uh, uh, who's out there listening to us. Uh, we've got uh, some 13,000 to 17,000 people who are there. And uh, some may not be believers. And therefore, we want to be sure and have our invitation. Uh, so if your head bowed and your eyes closed, uh, I would appreciate that and that you would pray for the power that's in the Word. Uh, because uh, there may be someone who is without hope uh, and uh, therefore without Christ and without eternal life. And we would certainly recommend that you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ right now because He told us that Christ came unto His own, which would be the Jew, but His own received Him not, but as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God, even to them who believe on His name. That we're all sinners, of course, is a, is a given. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it is certainly made clear by John 3.16, For God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God sent His Son not into the world to condemn excuse me, to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. He that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth upon him. And the scripture tells us it's all by grace. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And he came unto his own, but his own received him not. But as many as did receive Him became sons of God. So right where you are, you can simply tell God the Father. You don't have to jump through any psychological hoops. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. You can simply tell God the Father, I'm believing on God the Son. And on the promise of the Word, you will be saved. I'm going to pause right now to let anyone who may be without Christ to do just that. And then I will close with a benediction. Father, we are grateful for the privilege of being able to come together and study Your Word. Now, I would ask that God the Holy Spirit would take that which I have presented, make it real, in order that we might grow in Your wonderful grace and become more like our Lord and Savior, even Jesus the Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. Thank you. Take, take care, Dolly. Thank you.